This is One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. One in 59 is a weekly show devoted to topics related to autism spectrum disorder. Good morning and welcome to One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, Chief Development Officer at Anderson Center for Autism. And this morning I'm speaking with Dr. Matthew Siegel, who's the Director of Developmental Disorders for the Maine Behavioral Healthcare. Dr. Siegel, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So pleased you're on the show today. We're going to talk about some interesting interesting uh, work that you're doing and some of the implications that I, I'm going to say, well, you said before it was sort of a, uh, a magical quote-unquote process um, and the way that the information we can glean through some uh, through some work that you and your team are doing that may be able to positively impact individuals with autism and their families and in a lot of different ways. So I'm going to leave it wide open for you to uh, to introduce your study and, and start us off by just talking to us a little bit about what you're doing uh, in your work right now as it relates to autism. Autism. Wonderful. Thank you. So, so I am the director of our Autism and Developmental Disabilities Services, and we are a large behavioral health care organization in Maine and have the largest set of services for the population. And our services stretch from a very specialized inpatient unit where um, we only admit children with autism and other developmental disabilities, which there are only a few of these in the nation, uh, all the way out to kind of typical outpatient care care, but in a center for autism uh, and developmental disabilities. And that work, that clinical work, is what drives our research work. And what we've noticed in our clinical work over the years, and and we do kind of, I think, what is typically kind of best autism practices, which is to approach challenging, our clinical work is really focused around challenging behaviors and approaching those challenging behaviors from a multidisciplinary approach that's based in applied behavioral analysis, but also takes a serious look at comorbid psychiatric uh, disorders, sensory sensitivities, communication needs, medical problems, nutrition, etc. But and that approach is quite is quite helpful and 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 productive for lots of kids and adults. However, it does not really address a, a real problem that we have noticed over the years, which is even if you can reduce a behavior, if it continues to be present, or if you don't succeed in reducing it, it is the unpredictability of that behavior. In other words, not knowing when it's going to happen, if it's going to happen, which is the case with portion of behaviors. And when I say behavior, I mean challenging behavior. I mean physical aggression toward other people or self-injury or property destruction, other things like that, mm-hmm. which certainly not the majority of people with autism uh, engage in, but a, but a significant portion do. And it's those behaviors, and particularly it's the unpredictability of the behaviors that really limit people's lives. So it's bad enough if someone is physically aggressive. However, what keeps them, what gets them kicked out of their school or keeps them from going to a restaurant or being able to go to the grocery store is that you don't know when it's going to happen often uh, for a lot of individuals. And so that's the problem that really caught our attention and shifted us into this study that we're doing, which we've been working on. We have a large study going. We already did a pilot study where we're looking for What, in addition to behavioral analysis and looking at antecedents and all those things, what else can give us a read on how an individual is doing and help us predict what might be coming in the near future 
support, which, if you can do that, opens up a whole new window for intervention. And those interventions might be a functional communication intervention or another uh, intervention, but you would know to do the intervention if you know that this individual is showing that they're likely to engage in a certain problem behavior in the next 60 seconds, let's say. And so the study we're doing is we are looking at objective measures uh, being objective physiologic measures, um, heart rate, a, a measure of kind of stress, uh, which is called electrodermal activity, which is the electrical current on someone's skin, temperature, movement, uh, and we're doing this with a wearable biosensor uh, that picks up the data, sends it wirelessly, and then we're, we are, our study is to take this data, build algorithms um, that can predict, uh, take that data and predict what is going to happen in the next 60 seconds, two minutes. And the way we do that is that while we are collecting that data, we also are observing the individuals, and we're doing this study in our inpatient unit, and we're recording. A uh, research assistant is actually watching and recording what actually happens, and then we link up the, the, the physiologic data, the data where we are watching what happens, and then we're developing algorithms to try to predict what what will happen in the future. Wow. All right. So you You've answered a few of the questions that I started in my head with, which was how would you define, quote unquote, near future um, in Mm. terms of how quickly are you looking for something to occur once you pick up on these signals? But you said between about a minute and two minutes. That makes sense to me in terms of sort of social significance. It needs to be something that you can kind of predict something that's happening soon. Yes. Yes. So. Um, people who are not as familiar with the kind of clinical challenges or just day-to-day challenges that that people with autism and other developmental disabilities can present um, have asked us, well, gee, is a minute or two minutes, is that enough? Is that relevant? And uh, as, as you indicated from your experience, actually having a minute or two of warning is, is everything. It allows you to triage your attention to that individual, make the environment safer, and then most importantly, once you have figured out what's effective for this individual in terms of coping strategies, de-escalation strategies, or just simply communication about what might be bothering them, it gives you that opportunity to try to intervene and assist them prior to this behavior that you are predicting is likely to happen. Right. It's sort of a sweet spot when it comes to mm-hmm. short enough that, you know, that it, it kind of makes sense to, to intervene in some way, but enough time to, to have some sort of opportunity to help the individual maybe become distracted or, or, or even offer that, that person somebody or something that's going to, uh, that, that has been shown previously to help them self-soothe, you know, and many of us have, yes. have you know, whether we're on the spectrum or not on the spectrum, most of us have something that we like to touch or think about or smell or be near that helps us feel more relaxed. So it, that, that to me makes sense. Again, I'm in this population. I work with, uh, we work with um, uh, people who are severely challenged by autism mm-hmm. every day at Anderson Center for Autism. So I can, in my head, I can see the implications of something like this. Now, another thing that you mentioned, I just wanted you to expand out on a little bit is 
did did I hear it right that you are currently conducting this work in a setting that's that's uh, in a clinical setting, or or are you able to allow individuals right now as part of the study to wear these devices at home or in the community, or is it all done kind of in a campus or a uh, a clinical setting right now? So currently, in the research study we're doing, which is a three-year study that's going to um, have 200 participants, ultimately, it is all in a clinical setting. So it is all in, it's actually in three sites, our specialty inpatient unit and a similar unit at um, uh, University of Pittsburgh um, and a similar unit at Bradley Hospital in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our partners, I should mention, very important partners in this are our colleagues in computer science at Northeastern University who help process all the data and build the algorithms. Um, so it is, uh, but to answer your question, it is entirely at this point within clinical settings. I think that, you know, we view this as exciting and promising as we think this is. We are researchers, and we're we're holding this to the typical very high standard of uh, clinical research, and so we are uh, looking to really demonstrate over the next three years through a series of studies and, and publications if this works and how it works, and I think that's appropriate before we then bring it out. Certainly the next step, as you allude to, is to bring it out to the wider community, have kids wearing it at home, and I, I, I'm saying kids, but it really could be any an individual of any age. Um, uh, at home, um, but we feel like a step-by-step process is important. I mean, as much as we all want to rush ahead with advances for the population, we we feel like we really need to take it step-by-step. And our research is funded by two foundations, the Simons Foundation, which is based in New York, and the Nancy Lurie Marks Family Foundation, which is based in Boston, and it is not funded or supported really in any way by the the particular device maker, and we feel that that's important because uh, we're really interested in it from a scientific standpoint of how does it work and how do we optimize it, and really potentially this this type of approach, there are a number of devices that could be used to, to do this. Okay, right. Thank you for clarifying that because I think that would be a question on people's minds, especially if they follow up after this interview, after listening to this and try to get more information. Because the the device itself, as you mentioned before we started talking, Dr. Siegel, um, is less important to you right now in the moment than the process by which you're gaining this information and figuring out the, the, the smoothest way to provide feedback. Um, and on that note, we only have a couple seconds before we take a quick break. Um, I'm going to follow up on that in the second half of the show. For now, can you just clarify for this current part of the study, is there an age range that you're working with? Are you only working with children right now? Um, yes. Yes. Our, these inpatient uh, units are child and adolescent units. So I believe the age range for the study is 5 to 20 years old. Uh, primarily, it's probably 6 to 18 year olds. Um, and it is only, in, the only individuals who can enroll currently are in these three inpatient units. Okay. I just wanted to clarify that for, to put it in context for everybody. Uh, we're going to take a short break. This is 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and we'll be right back. You've just received the diagnosis. Your child has autism spectrum disorder, and you're no doubt experiencing all kinds of emotions. Perhaps you even feel as if you're alone on an island far out in the sea, but you're not at all alone. Here at Anderson Center for Autism, we've been helping people just like you navigate those waters for 
nearly 100 years, and we've been giving children and adults, just like the one you love, what they need to shine. Our state-of-the-art education center, our nurturing residential, recreational, and community programs, and our inspiring vocational training center all bring out the best strengths, skills, and smiles in our students and residents with autism. Our belief that every person has unique talents and opportunities, and the potential to enjoy a productive, purposeful future, buoys up our staff, our families, and our community. And our mission to optimize the quality of life for people with autism serves as a compass guiding us along the way. At Anderson Center for Autism, we're here to help your family enjoy a rewarding journey ahead. Learn more at andersoncenterforautism.org. Welcome back to One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and this morning I'm speaking with Dr. Matthew Siegel from the Maine Behavioral Health Program. I think I got that title wrong, and I apologize, Dr. Siegel, but I'm just excited about what you're sharing with us about your study right now. No problem. Um, so when we when we stopped at the, at the end of the first half of the show, um, you had really given a nice overview about the work you're doing. You're in the middle of a study uh, that eventually will have about 200 individuals participating in it between the ages of about 5 and 20 years old, all of whom, at least for this current part of the study, are, are um, participating in an, an inpatient setting, clinical setting, right, in three different locations. Did I get that yes. right? Okay. Um, now, we're talking about a device, but there are many devices, as you mentioned, um, and the process by which a device that you wear that's meant to be non-intrusive, similar to probably things that pe- people are wearing these days all over the place, um, mm-hmm. that is designed to pick up uh, some physiological changes that occur um, potentially just moments before uh, an individual on the spectrum may be severely challenged by uh, socially significant behaviors, self-injury, uh, aggression, maybe property destruction, the kinds of things that we often see at Anderson or can see at Anderson, that 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 there might be some physiological changes that could eventually predict that one of those behaviors might be coming in the next 60 to 120 seconds in that person's experience. So my, my question to you now is, I can see clear implications for why something like this would be very helpful to a caregiver, a staff person, maybe in a residential setting, a parent, a grandparent, uh, a guardian, a teacher, um, a respite worker, somebody who's with that individual when they're navigating their daily life, right? They could intervene. They could provide a soothing opportunity or distract that individual. So is there that in your mind as, as a possible outcome here? And then to follow up on that, is there also any thought in, in your and your team's um, work right now about the idea that some of this feedback could eventually go directly to the individual themselves, which to me takes it to a whole new plane of independence and self-care? Yes. So as you said, when I was describing it previously, I was talking about giving signals and warnings um, of risk uh, prediction to people in the environment and, and was thinking of, in our environments, staff, uh, but also could be parents or other caregivers in a community environment. But you're absolutely right that I think in a lot of ways the, the holy grail, if you will, uh, in autism work is enabling uh, autism and other developmental disabilities is to enable the individual themselves to help themselves. And so you, you, we certainly uh, definitely conceptualize that we'd love to reach a point where we, the individual is receiving a signal so, so you can imagine that 
the device itself, which, as you said, it looks a lot like a uh, you know an Apple Watch, uh, fa- fairly similar. The signal of of risk uh, or that 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 things are not are heading in the wrong direction could appear as a very simple uh, character or a favored you know some kind of favored thing that perhaps taps into the individual's. Uh, particular interests or just, you know, a, a very simple green, yellow, red kind of system. Mm-hmm. And and you work with the individual uh, to teach them, uh, depending on, you know, their level of functioning, what that, what that means, or simply when you see this, then you, and then it's a question of what's effective for them, but, you know, take 10 deep breaths or sit down on the floor or ask for help. Um, and that kind of closed feedback loop where you know to me that's the ultimate if it can signal the individual themselves that they're you know having a hard time and then even suggest to them a coping strategy which could could follow on that screen that would be uh, really wonderful because of course as we know people with autism across the spectrum frequently have difficulty as we all do to some degree, I think all humans do, identifying your current emotional state and that you're having a hard time or getting agitated or even identifying why. And so getting a cue about that and then having a practiced routine of how you respond to that, I think is 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 really where to go and, and thus making the individual not staff dependent or caregiver dependent or helping them not be staff or caregiver dependent. So you know, and obviously what that looks like really varies depending on the level of um, autism or developmental disability the individual has. Uh, but that is our dream for sure. Well, that, it's an awesome dream. And I, I think um, you also just mentioned something I want to highlight again, which is that for every individual, most likely something like this is going to look different. Um, mm-hmm. There might be somebody who responds to it so well that it's going to be very helpful over a number of different challenging behaviors. And, and I also keep throwing the phrase socially significant in there which I know mm-hmm. you know why, and it comes down to a big part of applied behavior analysis and, and the fact that these challenging behaviors, the reason why socially significant is so important and why I think that what you're looking at is so important uh, in, the, in the end game really is because the unpredictability where you sort of started mm-hmm. with all of this is so socially significant because if somebody has a very challenging behavior and, and, and some of them are, are you know, they can be self, they can be harmful. They can be very mm. dangerous to the individual or others. They can be very traumatizing to, to see occur. But, uh, but if, if you happen to know that somebody is always going to attempt to maybe bite their hand, um, maybe out of a level of frustration over something else at five o'clock every Tuesday, there's a way to, to work around that. There's a way to prepare for that. It is the unpredictability that makes, uh, things so socially significant when you're out in your community, when you're thinking about going to a restaurant, when you're thinking about going shopping with your child um, on the spectrum, it's that you're not always in a situation or a setting where you're going to be able to, to intervene in the way that's most successful. So I, I like how this all kind of comes together. And then I agree with you, a, a really wonderful outcome would be to even just in certain, certain circumstances, um, have that individual be able to start to learn how what their signs and symptoms are, uh, or precursors or triggers, whatever word you want to use. Um, because I see it every time, every day at Anderson, there, there is a, can be, let me be clear. There can sometimes be 
generalized misunderstanding or um, a myth that 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 the individuals that we're serving somehow don't want to have control over their lives or can't have a sense of direction and purpose and meaning in what they're doing. And I, I want to say that I think if something like this were to become available and accessible to a lot of people, there'd be quite a significant number of people who currently, um, are, don't have access to a lot of opportunities, um, but potentially could if they were, had a, had a tool they could use to learn how to step away from a situation to take care of themselves for a few minutes and then step back into a social or community situation. So I, I love the implications of what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, it's you know, we are researchers, but we are clinical researchers. We, we all, all of us uh, involved in this project also do clinical work or have in the past, and that's really what's driven us to this point. And so we are, we are excited that it is both scientifically exciting, but also clinically and, and real world uh, applicable. And so we're very, we feel very fortunate to be able to do this work, actually. Excellent. And I, I, I love hearing that. It's, you know, there's so much research going on, but there always seems to be, especially with this population, a sense of real exploration and excitement about future holds. So I, I and I think that that kind of hope and positivity is what we, we all really need. Um, last couple of minutes of the show, uh, what is what kind of feedback do you get from the families of the individuals who are participating in the study? I mean, is there excitement over this? Is there um, has it been easy to recruit people for the study or or challenging? You know, what give us a sense of how that aspect is going? Yes, there is great excitement, and and then they have to um, exert a lot of patience because um, they see us engaging in this, and they're, of course, understandably very interested in wanting to run out and apply it, but we, you know, aren't, aren't ready for that stage yet. So, um, but there is great excitement, and um, we, it's been actually quite easy to enroll uh, for this study, and that's partly because we've been doing various research studies in these inpatient units um, for actually about five years and um, have found that even though kids coming into these these inpatient units, by definition, things are not going well. That's why they are hospitalized in these units and families are often have been really struggling and in crisis. They actually are very happy to have them participate in research while they're in the inpatient unit and getting treatment. Um, and, and they understand that it's not going to lead immediately to assistance for their child, but they've, they've really been quite responsive. Um, I mean, the enrollment rate is, is extremely high. So we're, we're really feel fortunate that they're willing to let us do this work with their child, even when they're in, you know, they've been through a lot of difficulty in the recent past, usually. Yeah, but. it's it's always amazing how resilient and strong these families come to become, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's always, it's very touching to me. We have uh, less than a minute left. Is there any place you'd like people to go to get more information or get involved or follow some of your work or, or any parting words, Dr. Siegel? Well, that is very nice of you to ask. Uh, we, we, as mentioned, we uh, people here in the show probably cannot enroll in the study because we're only in these uh, three inpatient units right now. However, to follow our work, certainly looking for publications. Also, you can check um, the website for our inpatient research collaborative, which is www.mmcri.org, and then backslash 
AIC, which stands for Autism Inpatient Collection, and that is uh, uh, the website for our inpatient research collaborative. And you can learn about this study and others, as well as um, also there's some resources there about inpatient treatment and just working with individuals with challenging behaviors. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Matthew Siegel from Maine Behavioral Health. We really appreciate you sharing your work with us today. I wish you the best of luck. I hope it continues to go well because it seems to me to have some really exciting implications and uh, practical implications for the um, population of, of folks on the spectrum in the future. So thank you so much for being on 1 in 59 today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. This is 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, And remember, Anderson cares. You've been listening to 1 in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. Join us for another edition of the show at the same time next week.